Welcome to Honey and Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Yes, welcome back. No, we have some wonderful requests from listeners, and we get connected to many of our guests that come on the show through our listeners. So I wanted to extend a special thank you to all of you that have reached out, that have connected us with guests and have had wonderful suggestions. One request that I sometimes receive is to hear more about alternative schools. And there is one in particular that has come up a few times, and that is Sudbury Valley School. Here's an example of the email. I wanted to send you a message to tell you that I enjoy your podcast. I homeschool my three active kids, 10, almost eight, and almost five. We have homeschooled for five years, and in the last year, I've begun looking into learning about starting a school. I recently came across your micro school podcast and loved it. It was the first I heard that there are others out there like me wanting to start a school. I have since then come across a school that I think you would love to do an interview slash podcast on. It is Sudbury Valley School, which is a democratic unschool. I have become a lifelong listener of your podcast and look forward to where your podcast goes in the future. Thank you. Thank you for that email. And in this episode, that's who I'm interviewing, Dan Greenberg, one of the founding members of Sudbury Valley School in Framingham, Massachusetts. Dan had me reflecting and reevaluating some of my long-held assumptions and beliefs. This was a fantastic interview. Thank you so much, Dan. And I also want listeners to know, to preface this interview, that there were a few questions that I had asked of Dan that listeners had sent in. Many of the questions were around democratic schooling and how the democratic process works at the school. Some questions were, how do you prevent political persuasion votes, especially for the younger ones? If there is no curriculum, is it inquiry-based? How does democracy support self-directed learning? Wouldn't an individual's voice be overruled by the majority? What if my child isn't self-motivated? Do you only accept certain kinds of kids, in quotations? How do kids learn the basic skills at your school? And how do they get into post-secondary? Dan addressed all of these questions, and he also addressed another issue. That is, whether Sudbury Valley School is actually an unschooling school. So I do recommend you read his essay titled, Let's Be Clear, Sudbury Valley School and Unschooling Have Nothing in Common. And I have referenced that essay in the show notes. You can find the link there. I would love to hear your feedback and any questions you have from this episode. And don't forget to contact my mom at Honey I'm Homeschooling the Kids on Instagram, on her website, or on Facebook. Enjoy the episode! Today on the episode, I have Dan Greenberg. Dan, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Dan Greenberg is best known for developing a unique view of children's place in the world and an innovative concept of schooling appropriate for the 21st century. He has written extensively about the philosophy and practice of the educational environment he helped to found and develop Sudbury Valley School in Framingham, Massachusetts, where he has been on the staff since its inception in 1968. 
He has written extensively on the congruence of the Sudbury Valley style of education and the information age. Among his recent publications are A Place to Grow, The Meaning of Education, Turning Learning Right Side Up, as well written with Russell Ackhoff in 2008. He has also co-written several books about the lives of alumni after Sudbury Valley. For a full list of his publications, you can go to the website bookstore.sudburyvalley.org. Dan, who lives in the Boston suburbs, was born in Philadelphia and lived extensively in New York and in Jerusalem. He received a Ph.D. in theoretical physics at Columbia University in 1960 and served on the faculty of both the physics and history departments there. He has published in those fields and also worked in publishing and business. He and his wife, Hannah, who is also founder of Sudbury Valley School, are on the staff there. They have three adult children who attended Sudbury Valley through graduation. Thank you very much. Well, that sounds like me. (laughs) Good. I have the right person. Good. (laughs) So I thought just if there is anyone that is tuning in that is not quite familiar with Sudbury Valley, maybe you could share a brief history of the school. The real question is, why did it happen at all? Yes, exactly. It's not an easy one to answer because there were a number of people who came together to found it. And none of us knew each other except for me and my wife, who obviously did. But all of the other initial founding group came to it because they heard about it one way or another when words start getting out. So basically, each one of the people who founded it had their own story that brought them to it. And what I can do is very briefly tell you my story and my wife Hannah's story, because they're very different. And that difference is reflected really in the stories of all the others who came. Here's the deal. (laughs) I (laughs) had no problem with the regular public school system. I grew up in it in Philadelphia, New York. It never was a challenge for me. I found the work extremely easy and pretty much the same in college and graduate school. So I was right on track to be your regular good student who didn't really feel he was on a treadmill or in a grind. And as a matter of fact, I became very early, you know, immediately after my degree, I started teaching at Columbia. And I went to that with a lot of zest. You know, I loved physics. I loved what I was doing. I was a scientist. And I was going to convey that passion and that love to my students by creating really good and innovative and imaginative courses that would bring science to life for them. I'm saying it with that lilt to my voice because you can imagine the idealistic young teacher who is full of passion for what he's doing and thinks that he can convey that passion to others and light a flame in them too for this beautiful thing that he's doing. And what happened to me, that is when disillusionment came and it came rapidly because No matter what I did in the classroom, and I worked really hard to present extremely exciting and and wonderful, wonderful lectures and, uh, you know, good reading material and so forth. And the students in the classes actually seemed to be responsive. They seemed to enjoy the classes and everything. And most of my presentations were a little different than what the standard textbook said because they tried to make it more interesting, more varied. And then when I would give the exams, I found out that all I got back was what the textbook said. It's as if I hadn't said a word. (laughs) 
and that you know when that happened for a solid year i thought to myself well what's wrong with me i'm not i'm really not being a good teacher i better hone my pedagogical skills and i worked hard on that and i talked to other colleagues and finally after 3 years of this it hit home and it hit home really hard and that is no matter how hard you try and what you do people will not learn unless they are coming from a place where they, on their own, have a passion and a desire to learn the material, whatever the material is. What you can do is you can entertain them. You can give them a good show. I mean, there were even times when the students clapped at the end of a lecture, and I'm not showing off. I'm just saying, you know, (laughs) it was like a show. But when it comes to actually learning something, which means understanding it, analyzing it, thinking about it, owning it, it's got to come from within. And it took me a few years for that to sink in. But when it sank in, it really sank in. And I realized this whole world is upside down, which is actually what led later to the title of the book, Turning Learning Right Side Up. The Mm -hmm. equation between teaching and learning simply wasn't an equation. One had nothing to do with the other unless the learner came with a passion and asked to be instructed and was in control of what he or she absorbed. That's what brought me to this initially. What brought my wife to it was a completely different world. She hated school from day one. She never did her homework. She got the worst grades in the world. She was viewed as a complete, and she was clearly bright. Everybody knew she was smart, you know, intelligent, but a complete failure in school. And frankly, I think the main reason she even got through it at all was because her dad was a very well-known professor of education and had taught most of the teachers in her schools, and they didn't feel like flunking her, so they gave her Ds. She was you know, a straight wow. D student okay. kind of thing. She squeaked through a high school diploma, but her passion was biology. And ultimately, she got a PhD in biochemistry from Columbia and at that time, in, in, in the 1960s, very, very few women got degrees in hard science anywhere. So you can see that when she had the passion, she was able to overcome every obstacle. And when she didn't, nothing could get her to do it. So those two, you see how different that is? Two completely, yeah, completely opposing right, sides. Two completely ways to come to the same conclusion. The whole system is wrong from the outset. Mm -hmm. And then the capper was when we had our first child for us. And when we had our first child, everything else was turned uh, upside down, completely upside down uh, because we were fascinated. Neither of us had had any experience with infants and it was like a whole world was opened up to us. And what we realized we were seeing is the product of evolution. (laughs) And we'll, we'll be talking about that a little later. Here is this creature, this human creature. What a fascinating thing that was to watch. How interesting, how how active, how full of curiosity, how fascinatingly self-aware. I mean, we could look and look at, at how when he was a tiny, tiny infant, and I'm sure everybody with children has, has experienced this one way or another, he started examining his fingers and his hands and wondering what they were and how they worked and all that. And then 
as he grew a little older, there was nothing he wasn't curious about and he wasn't into and he wasn't trying to figure out. That was the real thing. It was clear that something that later, I mean, became formulated in our thinking, that one of the great gifts that evolution gave human beings was self-awareness, which is unique to humans, that humans are not only aware of their environment, like all animals and even plants are, but they're aware that they're aware. They can think about thinking about it. And that's what he was doing. And he was creating his picture of the world right in front of us. He was molding it from the beginning. And it was a fascinating experience for him because he never tired of it. He was never bored. He was always active. And he was always doing it. Of course, when we had our second child, that whole experience repeated itself in a completely different way, showing, if you needed to have it shown, how unique and diverse human creatures are and how the one thing they have in common was an insatiable desire to figure out the world and to figure out what they wanted to be in it. You don't need more than that. Mm. Those elements are the school. It was clear that these kids are people, fully formed people. They're just young, but they're no different than us. They're no different than us in what they do, what they want, and there's no reason to treat them differently. And mm -hmm. back in the 60s was when the book Summerhill became very widely read. It became very popular in that part of the states that we lived in. And we read it, and it's an interesting story, which probably is worth telling, that we read into it what we wanted. <laughs> Only later did we realize that what we actually saw in the book was not quite what it was saying, but what we had put into it, which is, I think, very common with people who read. Our interpretations, um, yeah. What we saw in Summerhill was an institution that was, was based on complete freedom of kids to do what they want with their time and uninterrupted, uninterfered with, and a form of governance of the school that was a self-governing community that decided its own fate. And th that appealed to us as a, a suitable thing, which became an important part of what we did when we actually got to put the school together. That's the background. What about the other people who came and helped found it? Everyone has their own story. And, uh, you know, there's some people who saw their kids and saw that they're not going to be able to influence their kids no matter what they do. So they might as well support them in what they want to do. And other people came from other ideological or idealistic reasons. And uh, there was quite a group that came together when it first was formed in 68. So when you, so 1968 was mm -hmm. the start. And so you had, how many founding members would you say were part of the group? Well, that's not something easy to answer because we opened the, the founding group. We opened it. And there were times when 80 or 90 people would show up in a meeting. But of course, it very quickly came down to a working group. And that also consisted of people who were interested for various reasons. And a lot of them self-eliminated. By the time we actually opened the school, I can't even remember. We probably had something like 15 or 20 adults who had expressed a real interest in being there. Now, mind you, there was no money. Nobody got paid. In fact, nobody got paid for years and years. 
but they were about that. And we started in the summer to give it like a test run. And we learned a lot from that summer. And we actually started the first school year in September of 1968, standard school year in the United States, September through June. And at that time, we finally had settled on a basic 12 dozen people who stayed. And that was our first staff. And um, uh, we started the year basically had somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, of 60, 65 students for that year. Okay. Started with a little more. Some dropped out when they realized that it wasn't really what they wanted. But that was the size of the school, about a dozen staff, about 60-plus children of all ages. We, we have children from age four through 19 or 20, and we even have adults who, um, who enroll from time to time. Even have adults that enroll from time to time. Interesting. Sure. It's the most exciting place to be, and it's a great place to uh, to learn. Okay. Okay. So building on that then, I know one of the, I guess you could say, keystones of the school as well. I like how you described actually that self-awareness, wonder, the idea that humans are unique and diverse and the desire to figure out the world are really frameworks of it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is a democratic process. Was this part of the process from the very beginning? So you'd said you started in the summer before you kind of did a test run. Is that how it began? Did you implement that immediately or how did that work? Yes, absolutely. It worked because that goes to the heart of what a school is for in the first place. I mean, what we talked about is what education is about until now, right? Yes. Education comes from the Latin word educo, which means to lead out from within. And education is really about allowing what you have within you to flourish. So the question is, what's a school for if it's about letting what's in you flourish? And if you think about it, it doesn't take a lot lot of thinking, just a little bit of history. For the first, I don't know, million years of the human species or however many hundreds of thousands you time it, uh, there were no schools. I mean, the whole idea of mass education, that everybody should go to school, only began, let's say, roughly 150 years ago or so, maybe a little more. It's very recent, and it's recent in basically the Western world, and then it spread. So we're talking about a phenomenon that happened in a tiny slice of history. And you ask yourself, well, why did they happen at all? Because what happened before the children? Up until the 19th century, middle or third quarter of the 19th century, Children just grew up in their Mm -hmm. community. Human beings are social. They all form communities, and that's something we can get to a little later. They all form communities. There are tribes, there are towns, there are cities, there there are all kinds of collections of human beings. Human beings are not designed by evolution to exist as uh, lone riders in in this uh, trip of life. And one of the ways you can see that, again, evolutionarily, is that humans are given the unique skill of being able to symbolize their experiences with words. And I don't want to spend a lot of time going into that. I can, but just let's put it this way. When you think about a word, what is a word? Even ancient philosophers couldn't come to grips with what a word is. Socrates and Plato gave up on it and said, well, a word is something ideal. You know, it has some kind of a meaning. And somehow we figure out what it is. 
but in fact, what a word is, it's, it's a symbol for something. It's a symbol for a, a collection of our experiences. There is no meaning to a word other than what you ascribe to it. I'll give you what I'm talking about. Maybe that sounds mm-hmm. awfully abstract. Plato struggled with trying to define the word chair, and he realized that you can't because people in different circumstances use the word chair for different things that you cannot say, well, this is the definitive definition of chair and anything that doesn't meet that cannot be called a chair. It just doesn't happen that way. And and if you want any proof of that, just read poems because poets are noted for using words in ways that now reflect other references than what we're used to. So human beings have words, and words are these shorthand symbols for experiences. What a tool that is. You know what that enables us to do? Think of what you would have if you didn't have language, if you didn't have this shorthand. All you would have is your memory. So if you remembered a situation, remembered it in full, then you might be able to devise a reaction to it, a new situation you're in. But to build a picture of reality, which we self-aware humans can do, you need more than that. You need to be able to build a whole structure. You can't build that out of memories because what goes into our worldview are millions, billions of memories, which we collect and put into some kind of form. The only way you can do that is if you have building blocks that are very efficient. And that's what words are. Building blocks represent whole collections of experiences. That's what the words do. And to build a picture of the world is like building a beautiful building. And what do you use in a building? Use bricks, use construction material, and words are our construction material. The fact that humans have words is what enables us to find our place in the world, to understand the world, to create for ourselves a a framework for understanding it. So that's built into our evolution, and it means that we are going to be social because the minute we realize that we're doing this, and every infant, you know, creates their own language from the beginning, and adults around them are always struggling to understand what they mean. That cry means our baby is hungry. That cry means he's, you know, in pain, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There are these symbols that even the tiniest infants already learn to use, and once kids learn how to use them, they catch that other people are doing the same thing and that finding common symbols, common words with other people gives them not only more building blocks, but a window into somebody else's mind. And that is the most exhilarating, the most wonderful mind-expanding experience than any human being has. And that's why we love to talk. Look what you and I are doing right now. Absolutely. We're talking. I mean, why does anybody care about what anybody else says? But we're always talking. People talk all the time. What are they doing when they're talking? They're articulating their own thinking and organizing it better and finding out what other people are thinking in order to see if it will enrich themselves. It's funny, I remember when we first started, this was prehistory, right? Before the internet and before all that. And we would have parents complaining that that's when the only phone contact was with landlines. And parents would say, oh, my teenage kids, they spend hours and hours on the phone. We can't even get to use the phone. And what do they talk about? Nonsense. Like, 
what are they going to wear to the prom? And I would laugh at that and say, well, I mean, but that's so important to them. I mean, they're trying to find out what other people's reaction are to what they're thinking. Right. That's how you find your place in the world, by finding out where you belong in the society that you're in. Right. It helps to define your world, those words. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what kids have done as they grow up, and that's what adults do. So you didn't need school. A child was born into a community. All human societies had some form of community or other. And what they did was they grew up in that community. They were embedded in it. They learned its language. They learned its cues. They learned its worldviews. Sometimes they created new ones in any society, right? And so they didn't need school. And in order to find out what was important to survive in any given community, they just opened their eyes and studied where they were at. And isn't that what we do as adults? If I took you from your farm in Alberta and I said, you know what, I'm just going to take you and I'm going to plop you down in the Cameroon in Africa. I mean, there you are, you're an adult, you know how to take care of yourself. What's the first thing you would do? You would look around. You would try to get the cues. You would try to learn their language to see what their worldview is about. You would try to figure out how to work your way into that community. I'm assuming that you've gone there of your own free will. <laughs> I'm not sending you there yeah, as a right. prisoner. That might change things a bit, but yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, a bit. <laughs> So there you are. And isn't that the first thing you do? And the first thing you'd find out in order to survive in that community and to thrive in it is, well, what are the things they need? What are important? Right. right? It's not going to help them if you know how to code computers if they don't even have electricity. Mm -hmm. Right. But you might find out that, wow, it's really important to survive there to know how to grow a certain important food element. And then you say, yeah, I think I'm going to become good at that. That sounds exciting. And that's what kids did always. They were embedded in their communities. And the way the communities survived over time, to the extent that they did and weren't destroyed by some natural phenomena or wars, to the extent that it survived, it was by passing the culture on from generation to generation through being embedded in it. And nobody ever asked, nobody ever asked, and think about it, in, in a village in, in medieval France or anywhere, well, what are the important things that kids have to know? Let's make sure they know them. Nobody ever asked the question like that. It's ridiculous. Of course they're going to know them. We knew them the same way they're going to know them. They're growing up. They have eyes. It was, just, it was assumed that they exactly. would know. Yeah. So why do schools come about at all? And only in a certain part of the world. Because even to this day in much of the world, kids don't go to school at all. They came about, and we know why. The history of that's been written John Gatto has good books about that, but a lot of people have written about that. And they came to be because basically in the modern industrial Western world, you needed to train people to service machines. It's that simple, really. Machines today, it's funny how, how history plays tricks on you. Machines, when they first were created, they weren't that sophisticated. They didn't have a lot of feedback. So you needed the assembly line was people who provided the feedback to the to the machine. You understand what I mean? If you saw something defective, mm -hmm. you pulled it out. If something needed tightening, you tightened it. Anybody who saw Charlie Chaplin's film Modern Times, which is one of the great classics ever made, 
it's a perfect characterization of what the modern industrial world was about. The man became part of the machine because human beings have that ability for feedback <laughs> that the machines of the time didn't. And guess what happened? We're now in the 21st century, late 20th century already. What happened? The computer age changed all that. The computer age basically is a peon of praise to feedback. You now have machines that check themselves and that feedback and correct the things that they did wrong according to a program that somebody's human has written for them. So you don't need all those people in the assembly lines. And in order to get people to be part of machines, they had to make schools. Because what were schools designed for? And you know, a lot of the people in the beginning of the formation of mass education actually wrote this. Schools are to teach children obedience. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. Isn't it also about control, essentially, as well? Well, that's but that's the same thing. You can't make a child obedient until you, unless you break mm -hmm. them, unless you control them. Because by nature, they're not. By nature, they're individuals. By nature, they want to realize, they want to survive. They want to realize their own destinies. They don't want to do what some other person wants them to do. Schools were institutions to break the will of children. And that's what they did. And we've now had, you know, 150 years of, of schools working hard to break children. It's a scary thought, actually, isn't it? <laughs> when you really think about the entire concept, it's... Uh... Well, you know, it's funny about that. It's scary. And on the other hand, when you realize that the industrial age really changed for the better the quality of life of a huge percentage of the people who lived in industrial societies, everything, the lifespan went up, prosperity went up, death rates went down, agricultural food production went up. You know, the things that are simply survival things really, really became much more available to a much larger population. So it was a trade-off. The people in control of societies, you know, figured that people would go along with the trade-off and, and, and settle for it. And they did. But the reality is, and we saw that in the 60s already, and that was a keystone of the school. We saw already then, don't forget this, well, don't forget, I'm sorry if I assume that you that you thought about this at all because most people don't but the computer age just started really in the late 40s as a result of the war yeah and in the 60s is when the first big computers by by big i mean physically big were built mm -hmm. taking up rooms and yes. oh my god we had a computer building built in columbia university which was gigantic and it produced it worked on computer cards punch cards, mm -hmm. and it had a power that was less than your watch. Right. I, I know my mom worked on an early computer in her town, and uh, uh -huh. it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, that would have been the 60s, actually. And yeah. it was massive, absolutely massive. And it was oh, yeah, totally completely different, <laughs> but it took a few people to man it, essentially, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I remember when the first computer came into Columbia, the first thing they computerized was, you'll love this story, was the uh, payroll. Right. And I got my first check and it was made out to the wrong name. <laughs> and I called up the office and I said, I can't do anything with this. The bank won't cash it. And they very seriously said to me, it's easier for you to change your name than it is for us to change the name on that check. Wow. So that's, uh, you know, and... and uh, the beginnings of automation. Wow. Okay. And we saw that coming. We saw 
what was coming down the pike. And the school has always been on the cutting edge. We had one of the earliest web pages on the internet. Okay. In 96, we had a web page back then when we had our first, 95, when we had our first web page. You'll laugh at this. There were 6 million web pages in the world. I mean, now there, nobody can count them. Okay. Yeah. So, but we saw that coming because we knew that the essence of the computer was to make information available easily. And we knew that it was just a short time before knowledge would be accessible to everybody. And you don't have to worry at all about people knowing things or learning things or skills. You don't even need libraries. And it was very clear to us. So any excuse for creating places where you had to sort of store knowledge and, and make sure it was available was gone. The computer age also was the death knell for making human beings part of a machine. So basically, you could embed children in the society, except that an industrial society is dangerous. It's just a dangerous place to be now. I mean dangerous because you have traffic going around, you have construction going up in places. You know what I'm saying? If you just let kids, little kids, roam freely out there in the world, whether it's in your town, a small town, a city, or a large city or whatever, it's not the safest thing in the world. Actually, if you're in a farm, it's not unsafe. Most On most farms, kids start working. I don't know about yours, but certainly in, in all the farms I've ever yeah. encountered, kids start working right away. Right away. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're a member, of, they member of the farm. They're an active. They yeah, want to. Absolutely. They don't want to be left out. You know, let me help with this. Let me, let me, you know, pick strawberries. Let me help with, with whatever the harvest or learn to run the tractor. Yeah, and, yeah. Ex exactly. They yeah. learn to operate the farm machinery at a very young age. It's ridiculous. We know what embedding means, right? Mm -hmm. So you can embed in certain places, but basically modern society as it's set up now is not a safe place to just say simply say okay kids roam because we haven't made room for them yet we haven't figured that out and a lot of that is politics and i don't want to get into that but a lot of it has to do with sociopolitics that you know people are afraid of child labor because child labor means adults won't work and so forth and again i don't want to get into the economics of it there's a fact it's not safe and that was the the only reason we created Sudbury Valley School. It was, as a, as a title of my book, A Place to Grow. It was a place to grow, a place where children could grow. But here's the but. It had to be a place that was truly embedded in the surrounding society. And I'm getting now in a very roundabout way to your question. If it's, <laughs> no, you're building it. I know you're setting the structure for it. So, yes. It's truly embedded in the structure and society of the United States of America. Now, that has very, very special meaning for people who live in this country. And I don't want to make any comparisons with other countries because I don't live in other countries. Okay. But let me tell you, and anybody who might be listening to this, there are a couple of really key features in our country. And they're laid out in two sentences in the founding document of the country, which is really like the expression of ideal that has guided the country in all of the 
institutions and structures that it has created over the last 250 plus years. And that is the sentences in the Declaration of Independence that we promulgated on July 4th, 1776. And those sentences say this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To protect these rights, governments are established with the consent of the governed. That's it. Those two sentences are what this country is completely about. Let me explain. The first sentence is the key. We're about the individual. Virtually every other society in the world up until then was based on the supremacy of the group, which makes a certain evolutionary sense, right? The species is always more important than the individual. We know that in evolution, right? Mm-hmm. The group, in a certain amount of sense, if the, the philosophy is for anybody to exist, the group in which he's embedded, he or she's embedded, has to exist too and sustain itself. So the important thing is to make sure that the town survives, that the tribe survives. And if the tribe survives, then as many individuals as possible will survive too. It starts with the group and the individual becomes a member of the group, but the survival and the welfare of the group comes first. The United States was set up very consciously, very consciously by the founders on the premise, no, we're turning that upside down. We're saying the starting point is the individual. That's the key. We want to create a place here on this continent where You start with every single individual having the unalienable right, God-given right, right, to be, to realize their own pursuit of happiness meant to them, pursuit of a meaningful life to them, to have their destiny realized. That's where we start. And the only reason we even have a government is to protect every individual's right. Now, that has certain consequences. One of the consequences is that where do you need government? This is according to that principle. Where do you need government? Well, let's say you have your idea of your destiny and I have my idea of mine, and they clash. Okay? We don't we can't coexist easily. And that's when the government has to come in and they have to do it in a way that we all agree. We all agree to the rules of the game. The government comes in and says, No, this is the way you, you settle that. We'll try to maximize each of your ability to realize your dreams, but you're going to have to give each other space. One of you is not going to dominate the other. That's what the government is about. And that's where our Bill of Rights comes from. That's where the concept of justice, due process of law, all of those things come from that that are spelled out in the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And America remains to this day one of the few countries in the world that not only has a written constitution, because you know most countries don't, and it not only has it, but it has a court system that makes sure that that constitution is um, you know, honored, respected, is respected, and followed. Exactly. Well, now you got the yeah. rest of the school. For us, mm. it made no sense at all to think that you could create citizens of the United States of America adults who become, who understand the country and respect what it's about, if you place them for the first 12 or 16 or 20 years of their lives in an autocratic setting, schools are completely autocratic. 
right through graduate school. They're run like a monarchy. Their monarchy decides the rules. Monarchy meets out the punishments. Monarchy does whatever it says is right, and you have to conform to it. So to us, if you're going to make a school that is appropriate for children to grow into American society, it has to give every single child the same rights as an adult. It has to not distinguish between children and adults. And so that's the way it's run. For us, I mean, our tag in Twitter is at kids or people. That little phrase really says everything. If you accept the premise that kids are people, then you've got the school. Because the kids here are treated exactly like adults from age four and up. I can have a conversation with a five-year-old. I'll never talk down to them. They'll look me right in the eye. It'll be interesting. They articulate themselves, and they know they have to relate to us in an adult way, and we relate to them in an adult way. And it's a wonderful place to be. It's exhilarating. That's why I'm not going to retire (laughs) until they make me. So you're saying kids are people. They're not little adults in training, or they're not just young, inexperienced adults. They are people. Yeah, the whole experience thing is a red herring. Because, (laughs) look, I will assume that I'm older than you. Okay, I think it's a safe assumption. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you are a little bit, yeah. (laughs) So I have more life experience than you. So I should be able to boss you around, right? (laughs) I mean, I have a lot more experience than you. But what does that mean? Nothing. It means nothing whatsoever. It doesn't give me any rights vis-a-vis you at all. Not in my way of viewing and not in our way of viewing society. And we don't distinguish between, we don't say 50-year-olds rule 40-year-olds, 40-year-olds rule 30. We don't do that. But we do it in school. We say adults rule children. Why? There's no evidence whatsoever. And one of the interesting things is I I used to love to read the literature of the early women's rights movements Mm -hmm. because all of the objections to women's rights, and this is stuff, by the way, that was held, you know, women didn't get the vote in Switzerland until the middle of the 20th century. Can you believe it? Wow. I didn't realize that. All the arguments are really very simple. They would always say that women are like children. They don't have judgment. And they're subject to the influence of their husbands, and their husbands will, it's just giving the husband and the married home two votes. And you look at that and you say, uh huh, okay. What evidence do you have that they're under the influence of their husbands and they do? Do you have any evidence for it? And of course, everybody felt sure that that was right. And then lo and behold, women got equal rights and got the vote. And it, you know what? They didn't have influence. Yeah, yeah. They're just, they're they're no less competent than men. In fact, I always tell kids in the school that women are smarter than men because they are. (laughs) So the same argument is made with no evidence for children. Right, right. And I always say, when they used to say women are like children, I say they're right, but they got it backwards. Children are like women and they're like men and they're like, they're like, you know, they're all people. And that's very clear how you explain that as well. To me, it's very clear. Earlier, I had asked you, I said there was uh, quite a few questions that I had from listeners, and I chose about six. And the first one was, how do you prevent political persuasion votes, especially for the younger ones, in your democratic school, in a democratic <laughs> process, see, in is. your school? Yeah. And, and that reflects the prejudice right there. Exactly. 
Exactly. Kids are people. <laughs> we don't have to prevent it. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Because that's what's respected. That's, that is a framework of the school. There's no, if someone is trying to persuade, that's completely against this, how the school. Well, no, they can try to persuade. We like debates. We like attempts to persuade, but persuade means that. If I can persuade you of something to do something and you do it of your own free will, that's nothing. Mm, okay. The assumption there is that older people will sort of, it's a kind of semi-bullying. You know, older right. people sort of like push people into something they don't really want. Not here. No. You should see our five-year-olds. <laughs> you try to persuade them against their will. <laughs> no, they're people. They look you right in the eye and say, well, I don't want to do that. And you can't make me. And bring me up to the judicial committee if you don't think I have a right to do that. And we have a court system that emulates the court system in the country completely. Right. There's no authority figure. The school meeting makes all the rules, everything. Budget. Oh, let me get back to something that I think you'll sort of like. So one of the things we missed in Summerhill was that Summerhill, their school meeting doesn't really make all the rules. Okay, It doesn't decide who's hired and who's fired. It doesn't decide budget things and so forth. And we know the people in Summerhill. We corresponded with them early on, and we said, how come you don't let your school meeting vote on the budget? And what did they say? And the, their answer was perfect. They said, well, we don't want to burden young people with those kinds of decisions. <laughs> that tells you everything, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. So is that how, in the very beginning, so you started 1968, September was your official school year. That's how, through that process, is really how you created what the school is today, how it runs, and how you were going to go forward for that September. That's right, from the beginning. Okay. So, you know, you said it was 15 or 20 adults, about, or a dozen adults, 60 to 65 students. So that is really the core group, those 60 to 65 students, those dozen adults. Yeah, but now, of course, that's changed over time. Okay, very interesting. Okay. It's been around for a long time, really. You know, this is a long-standing school mm -hmm. now. And, and uh, part of the 60s as well as you saw a movement of people wanting change and actively creating a change in what was around, right? A lot of that was in education, too, and schooling. So some people believe that it was kind of a fad that it wasn't going to stay and it was going to last. But really, you know, Sudbury is proving that it's not a fad. It's a, you know, it's a true belief that works. Right. Well, unfortunately, a lot of those schools failed. Most of them failed. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not here to critique other schools, but I know that one of the things that accounted for our success is that we never, ever stopped examining what we were doing, articulating it, writing about it, debating it, We've written literally thousands, the community has written literally thousands of articles. We have an education journal that discusses our principles over the years. I mean, literally thousands and thousands of pages where we analyze and think about that we never stay in one place. And you need to do that if you're interested in doing something countercultural. Okay. So can you give me an example of you've never stayed in one place, that it shifted as it should? No, it shifted. It, I don't mean shifted in how we perform, but how we understand mm, what we're okay. doing has deepened. The structure hasn't changed. The principles haven't changed at all. But we've enriched our understanding of, for example, of why you can treat children as people. We've understood things about human development that we didn't understand in the beginning because we've had so much of a chance. That's another thing. Once you're involved in a school like this, you realize how bogus 99.9% .9 of the so-called research about child development is all child development research is done in a 
test setting, in a laboratory setting. Right. They take the child out of their normal everyday life and they put them in constructed settings that are designed to give you information about how the child's brain works, okay? Now, to me, that's self-destructive before you even begin. I mean, how does that work? How do you find out what a child is by taking him out of his natural environment? Do you, is that how you find something out? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is no. And we have had uninterrupted observation of children in their natural setting, which is growing up embedded in a community. And boy, have we learned a lot. And we write about that, how resourceful they are, how fair they are, how gentle they are. You know, people ask about, well, you, we don't group people, of course. Everybody's free to go, come and go as they wish. They circulate freely. So you have complete free mixing of 17-year-olds and five-year-olds. And people say, well, isn't there bullying? And you've never seen an instant of that kind of bullying in this school because once you allow that kind of thing in a society where everybody's rights are respected, what's the point of bullying? On the contrary, the, the older kids say this often when you interview them and talk to them. They say, wow, it's fascinating to be around the younger kids. We've learned things about ourselves by looking at kids who are eight, 10 years old. So Absolutely. we've learned, that's what I mean by articulating. We've learned a lot about the animal human being that we didn't know before, and we write a lot about it. And by the way, you asked a question before, whether any kid can function in this school. Right. Is there a special kind of kid that works at Sudbury Valley? Yeah, a member of the species. <laughs> and I'm not being flippant about it, really, because I will challenge anybody. I'll put this challenge to anybody to disprove. You take one-year-olds from any section of the community, whether it's inner city, cities, farms, you name it, put a bunch of one-year-olds together in some nice, normal setting, you know, outdoors on a nice day, <laughs> and you tell me if you can distinguish them. They're all going to be busy. Mm -hmm. They're all going to be exploring. They're all going to be fascinated by everything around them. This kind of an environment is good for any living human being, who, of course, who doesn't have crippling diseases. I'm not, I don't want to get into that. But any human being, regular human being born and growing up thrives. And we see that in the people who come here. It's a total cross-section. My question that comes up as you speak about this too, as you're describing the framework, you mean really on, you know, the constitution of the United States. I think really it, that's, you know, that is the huge framework, the pursuit of a meaningful life and the, you know, the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. I know Sudbury Valley has expanded internationally. You know, there's mm -hmm. been many other schools uh, yes, in very different many. countries. Yeah, many. So how, you know, I understand, how does that work when, and I... They have a terrible time. Okay, I was going to say, we had talked about a bit in the East. You brought this up in the beginning when I was asking some of the yeah. questions too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how does that work in other countries where really the democratic process is very different? The, there is no constitution or... That's right. And I'm telling you that we are in contact with people, I mean, literally in almost every country, you would not even believe it. You know, we get people buying planning kits from mm -hmm. Turkey, from, from Iran. I mean, you name it. And no matter what the country, and there's schools everywhere. One of the first countries to have a whole bunch of schools that identify as Sudbury schools is Japan. Yes. Because they realize that their system is too restrictive and they want to expand it. It's now happening in China. A bunch of our books have been translated to Chinese. The problem is that in none of these countries does the government feel able 
to grant that kind of independence to a school. The government's control all schools. Mm -hmm. You cannot set up a private school based on different principles in almost any country. I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but I know that country after country, they have to struggle with the authorities and make certain compromises. And happily, we don't control the name Sudbury School or Sudbury Model. We don't monitor it. We don't act as any kind of, God forbid, not a franchiser. Anybody who wants to look at what we're doing, our aim was always to make the best place possible for children to grow. And anybody who wants to learn from it, see it, observe it, try to do what we're doing or similar is welcome to the name because we're not jealous of the name. And we don't say there is a Sudbury model and no other model is okay. We just say this is what we do. And so schools that identify themselves as Sudbury schools, but we do know we're in contact with a lot of them and they have a lot of trouble fighting with authorities and uh, a lot of them are closed down. Okay. So they can use names, but you don't franchise, you don't own the name, no, but no. it doesn't necessarily, I understand completely. I mean, where I live in Alberta and in Canada, the government has, and I think you probably understand it, you're familiar with Canada and I'm assuming oh, yeah. how it works and our government works. We're just, mm -hmm. the government has a lot more control here than in the United States, mm -hmm. especially in mm -hmm. education and private schooling. In my province, we do not, and I. this is always, you know, talking about words and the symbols, right? Mm -hmm. We do not use, people say private schooling, but technically, and, I'm, and this is also my definition, we do not have any private schools in Alberta. They're called mm -hmm. independent schools right. because the government still has, retains a portion of control for you to have right. an independent school in Alberta. Right. Well, it's interesting you say Alberta because one of the early places that tried to establish a Sudbury school was Alberta. A school called Indigo School was founded there. In Edmonton, yeah. yes. Indeed, yes. And a very interesting person and very devoted. And then there was, there was a school started in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and another one in Ontario called Beach School. I mean, there have been attempts to start schools, and certainly a lot of people in Canada know about us. And, you know, all we say is, God be with you. <clears throat> some, some lasted more than others. And, you know, as long as people are trying, maybe the word will get out eventually that, gosh, you know, give these, maybe governments will start to realize in general that maybe relaxing some of this control will be to our benefit. And I think we're going to see that happening more and more. I hope so. There's fear around it for sure. Relaxing control. What you're seeing happening, for example, in Hong Kong or in places around the world, whether or not it succeeds, you can see that the Thirst for independence and, and self-expression is, is not something you can just kill. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it's interesting because, I mean, for me, and I hope everyone that's listening, you know, you, I would hope they would have the same understanding as well. What you have been talking about completely answers all of the questions that were sent in and that I have as well, right? I, you understand, I, I really understand how you know, the belief and the framework of this. So much of it is, I think, the fear of letting go, the fear of control. Mm -hmm. So those questions like, you know, what if my child isn't self-motivated? Will they be able to prosper at Sudbury Valley School? You know, do you only accept certain kinds of kids who are going to do well there? Right. Um, you know, our definition of success, so many of it is the fear that we as parents and adults have of um, the reflection on our kids and how, you know, 
they're quote unquote going to be uh, judged or represented in right. society is what it's based on, right? Exactly, exactly. And the the question that you so often hear, how are they going to find out what the basic skills are? Well, I yeah. mean, of course they will. <laughs> That's a ridiculous question. If they're intelligent, they look around, they say, what do I need? Right. Because one of the questions is, what do you mean they don't have any classes or teachers or, you know, scheduled or math, for example? How are they going to learn math if there are no classes and teachers to teach it or to offer it? It's so funny because when people ask that question, I always turn it around. What do you do when you want to find out something? What do you do? Do you say, oh, I wish I knew that. Can I see where somebody's teaching a class in that? You know, whatever it is. If you're in a farm, I wish I knew how to grow this crop that I have never grown. Oh, I can't do that until the Agricultural Extension College has a course in growing that crop <laughs> two years. Is that what you do? Right. Is that what anybody does? Anybody? No. And you find so, out, you research, you learn, you ask questions, you ask others, you watch. And in the days of the internet and YouTube and everything, I mean, my son in Nova Scotia learned how to uh, service tractors and stuff all from YouTube, detailed things on YouTube. And yeah. he, didn't, you know, he didn't wait for a training class. So, yeah. yes, I mean, there are times when you say, I want a teacher to help me. And then you go to the teacher and say, I want you to help me. I want to hear what you have to say because I'm interested in how you do it. Well, that makes sense, right? And then you can stop if you don't like it. Right, right. When you, you feel you're ready, you've, you've learned what you want to learn. And, exactly. and then you can continue and move on. Exactly. Right. So I want to ask a, a few questions as well between, because to me, all of this is very clear as well, Sudbury Valley and unschooling. And I and I want to ask this, I know we're coming to our time too, and I really could listen to you all day long. And, oh, and, that's uh, sweet of you. Very kind of you to say. Explain this. So one of the, you know, as well, I, I have, you know, a lot of unschooling families that prefer, mm. say, oh, Sudbury Valley School is, you know, it's the... It's the pinnacle, right? You know, unschoolers, this would be the school that unschoolers go to. And I know you've had a recent essay, and actually even before I had been in conversation with you, I had, uh, I think they had posted on the um, AS, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. I think that's where I first read it. And it was, let's be clear, Sudbury Valley School and unschooling have nothing in common. So, especially this may be a surprise for some listeners. Why is Sudbury Valley School not an unschooling school? And I know you give four main points and elaborate, but... I'm going to make it one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need four points. I'm going to make it one. It goes back to what we were talking about. Sudbury Valley School doesn't... It's not that it trusts children. It trusts evolution. Evolution and nature. It trusts it. Evolution set things up. It set things up so that the species can promulgate itself and succeed by young people growing up embedded in the society. Young people want to be in that society. Evolution did not provide for human societies built around a nuclear family. That's a fact. And you will never find the nuclear family as the building block of any. It can be an important feature of it. Certainly, I love my immediate nuclear family and all that. But on the other hand, my wife Hannah wrote a wonderful essay called Roots and Wings. When you give kids solid roots of love and confidence at home, it gives them the wings to become, to fly away and become 
themselves. Our three children, we live in this Boston area, and one of our children lives in Nova Scotia, one in Chicago, one in Virginia. Wings, they've flown. The nuclear family is not the building block that sustains a culture. A culture is sustained by the entire culture as a whole. And the focus on the nuclear family, I mean, that's the key here. All the other things that I write in that particular article, which are, I think, valid, are a consequence of that. The core of the unschooling model is the nuclear family. Right. And yes, they have they see each other, they have social dates and so forth and so on, but the primary core is the nuclear family. And, you know, I used to tell people this before unschooling even came in. When I was 55 and my father was 90, and I'd have a conversation with him, <laughs> and I'd say something, and he'd just lift an eyebrow. I knew already what he was feeling. Kids read their parents, and they should, because their parents rear them. They nurture them through the period of life where they cannot be self-supporting and self-sustaining. Parents play a critical role with children as does the community around the parents and the extended family. But then the aim of parenting is as quickly as possible to make it possible for their child to have wings, to become independent, to become their own person. The best parent is the parent who provides the framework for a child to become completely independent. The parent who sends their kids to a Sudbury school is saying, I know you'll be okay because that's how nature, God, evolution, whatever your belief is, created you. And I'm sending you there because I know that's a place that respects that. It's the only kind of school that respects it. But not to put a kid in a social environment, to keep the nuclear family as the center pin of their growing up. You can do it. I mean, I'm, I don't control anybody. I don't want to control anybody. If they want to do it, that's fine. But what you're doing is you're fighting nature. You're fighting evolution. That's a big thing, especially in an era like ours, where we spend so much time trying to conserve nature, trying to preserve nature, trying to preserve the environment. Well, the key to the environment is evolution. And if you're fighting evolution, don't bother fighting all your other environmental battles because evolution is the key. Because a nuclear family is really just confined almost. And community, on the other hand, and being part of a broader community is not as confining as a nuclear family. I'm thinking also back to, you know, hunter-gatherer days, or even now, it's not necessarily the nuclear family, but the small community that lives mm-hmm. and That's raises right. and is, you know, really is a living force together from beginning to end in so many ways. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're the ones who sustain the culture, and that's the culture that you embed the child in. And the nuclear family doesn't necessarily reflect the culture that they're living in within their community. Well, it might even reflect it, but a nuclear family as a unit doesn't reflect the evolutionary Mm, destiny of the human species. Right. I understand that. I'll admit it's also a little bit difficult for me, too, because I think of the contrast, like we were talking about as well, that it doesn't always work in other countries, right? It works well in the United States, but it doesn't always work well in other countries. And I see the value and importance, and it's very clear to me, but then it's almost kind of like how, you know, to really, how do you do that when you're limited where you live as well? (laughs) You know, and and do you understand what I'm saying? 
it's, it's frustrating almost in that way. Oh, I understand. It's more than frustrating. It's really upsetting. I mean, we have people who have devoted enormous, enormous effort and, and courage in trying to found Sudbury schools in different parts of the world and fought legal battles that has basically impoverished them, you know, to get it in the end, if they, they either fail or, or are closed or they make compromises that we certainly don't ever criticize their compromises because they're trying hard. So we say more strength to you and, you know, we'll do what we can to help. Well, yeah, the fight continues <laughs> as it moves forward and moves on. Right. Usually I have a lot to say, but right now my brain feels like it is processing all of that. I also want to thank you for your time because I know we're going into our time and I know right now the school year will be starting for you soon and there's many things happening. Yeah, (laughs) We're very excited. How many students do you have right now? We probably have around, uh, we start on the 9th, probably around 120 now. 120 now. Wow. Okay. And And we're very excited to greet them. It's very lonely here in the summer when we have a lot of work to do, but (laughs) not a lot of kids running around. They're so interesting. So from age four all the way up, you had mentioned as well that adults come and register at the school too. As a matter of fact, there's one person now from a foreign country who's thinking of enrolling, who's an adult, who says, it's just, I just want to be here. And one of our staff members, who's quite an intellectual, he said, I've never, ever been in a more intellectually stimulating environment than the school. And I have to say the same. And I've been in the Ivy League. And let me tell you, it doesn't hold a candle. Hmm, I believe that. Do you allow visitors as well? So, for example, say I wanted to come and visit the school. Could I do so? (laughs) You're privileged, you see, because we have a connection. As a matter of fact, we had so much demand on visiting that the school meeting actually said, please, no more visitors, because it was like being fish in a fishbowl. So really now we severely have to limit visitors to either people involved in setting up schools or and here's where I'm rolling out the red carpet for you, or (laughs) somebody who's helping spread the idea. We're very happy to welcome them. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm excited. So if you're you're ever (laughs) even thinking of being in this area, if you come out to New Brunswick or Prince Edward Island or the Far East, take a little jog down here. (laughs) We'll roll out the red carpet. I have family in the eastern part, actually in New York State, but uh, yeah. That's not far. No, it's not. It's well worth the trip for me. So I will absolutely take you up. Hop, skip, and a jump. (laughs) And I'm going to leave you with one other question, and I'm going to change it a little bit because this is one of the questions I said that a listener had sent in. I know it's one that you get often, but I'm going to Twisted a little bit because of my own curiosity. So one of the question was, is, you know, how do kids from Sudbury Valley School enter post-secondary? But my change in that question actually is, how do they um, tolerate or cope being in an autocratic education or schooling system in post-secondary when they have grown up with Sudbury Valley? That's actually an easy one to answer, and it's it's a very interesting one because we've done a lot of, we obviously do follow-up and studies of our graduates who are a fascinating group of people. They, just like everybody else, can, do you have a minute? Let me just say this. Yeah, yeah. How does a kid, a little toddler who's trying to learn how to walk, tolerate falling down so many times? Mm. Why do they get up and keep doing it? Why don't they say, oh, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. Because they have a goal, and their goal is they look around, they say, I want to be like them, I want to walk on two feet by Germany, I'm going to get there. 
And so they'll keep trying it forever. And they do the same with words and with language and with syntax and you name it, they do it. No obstacle is in their way. A person who goes to college, first of all, they go to college because they have a reason to go to college, not because it's the thing you do after high school. For most people, it's an extension of high school now. You just go there because that's what you're supposed to do after high school. Mm -hmm. And then now people who go to college, you're supposed to go to graduate school to get an advanced degree because a college degree really isn't enough to get you a really good job and all that. <laughs> and the people who go on to further education do it because they have a reason. Right now, we have graduates who are in medical school. They wanted to be doctors. And they knew that to get into medical school, they had to do four-year college and satisfy the pre-med requirements. So it was not an obstacle. They knuckled down to it and they always do really, really well. Again, my wife wrote an article called What We Don't Teach Them at Sudbury Valley. We don't teach them to shirk their duties because by the time they want to do something, nothing, there's no obstacles to it. They'll exert any effort they can to reach their goal. We see it everywhere from every age and in every activity. So the kids who do choose to go to college, they do what they have to do. You know, yeah, it's not pleasant, but a lot of things aren't pleasant. You know, it wasn't pleasant to go to driving school, but I want to drive a car. <laughs> you know, all of these things. And that's the answer is really simple. And they always are good. Our kids have a reputation of being good students and good workers because they look for jobs that they want to do and they want to do well in them because they self-critique. And you're your own biggest critic when it comes to doing the things you want to do. If you want to be a writer, the first thing you do is you look at what you've written and you say, oh my God, that's trash. I got to write something better. You don't wait for some critic to tell you it's trash. That's absolutely clear. And again, it goes back to, and I see that they do very well because that's what they want to do. That's their goal. That's their interest. Yeah, and we have kids who don't go to college who do spectacularly too. I mean, yeah. we're very proud of it. And what? let me end by telling you what I'm most proud of. What I'm most proud of is that the relationships they form here are lasting and they have nothing to do with status in the community at large. Mm -hmm. People who grow up here, a person can be a plumber, can be an auto mechanic, can be a musician, can be an artist, can be a university professor. It doesn't make any difference. When they connect, they connect. They're people to each other. And believe me, in the world of, for example, elite academia, the stratification is so severe, it's painful. Yeah. And there's none of that here. It's like, we're all people and we're all good people and we're going to respect each other no matter what, as long as we remain true to ourselves. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you, Dan. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> thank well, you thank for you this for time. Me. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely talking to you and I look forward to meeting you someday and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com.